Thanks for tuning in today. You're listening to the official podcast of First Alliance Church in Great Falls, Montana, creating passionate followers of Christ. Today's message is from lead pastor John Reese. There are moments in our lives where God reveals that there's more to him than what we thought. Moments when he kind of pulls back the curtain and gives us a glimpse a little more fully to who he is, and there are times when God gets big, really big. And when we've had a moment like that, we're changed forever. No one gets a glimpse of God and remains the same. Thomas Aquinas uh, had such a moment after competing, completing 38 treaties and 3,000 articles and over 10,000 objections in his Summa Theologica, one of the greatest intellectual achievements of Western civilization. He abruptly quit his work. The reason he gave was that he had had a profound experience while celebrating the Lord's Supper at St. Nicholas's chapel. Reginal, who was his constant companion, was troubled that he had stopped his work prematurely, and he asked him, you know, how can you set aside such an important work which you undertook for the love of God and the enlightenment of man? And Aquinas answered him this way, he says, I can do no more. He says, such secrets have been revealed to me that all I have written till now seems to be just straw. In other words, when I got a glimpse of God, it amounts to nothing. All this work, all these writings, they're nothing compared to who he is. I can't adequately express who God is. He says, now I hope that in his goodness, God will allow me to end my life, to follow the end of my life to follow closely to that of my work. He got a glimpse of God. He felt his life's work brilliant, though we all recognize it as being, was totally inadequate expression of who God is, and all that was left for him now was for God to take him home. Donald McCollum wrote a book called The Trivialization of God, and he shared that when he was a student at Wheaton College, Dr. Raymond Edmond, the former president of the college, was speaking at chapel one day. At this time, his health was not good, uh, and so to have him come and speak was really a special occasion for the chapel. And he says, I remember his message well. He was talking about the need to have a greater reverence for God. He was comforting, confronting the students with their casual approach to worship, their informality in the presence of a king. Worship, he, he said, is a serious matter. And he recalled a time when he got a visit, uh, Haleo Selassie, the emperor of Ethiopia, and he described the preliminary briefings he had to go through before he could meet the emperor and the protocol he had to follow and the way he bowed down with respect as he entered into the presence of this king. He said, in the same way, we must prepare 
ourselves to meet with God. And at that moment, he slumped. And he died in the pulpit. Students were just shocked. They were just sitting there. All of a sudden, the dividing line between heaven and earth suddenly dissolved. There were no longer any restless college students there with textbooks in their laps, worried about what they were going to do over the weekend or who they were going to date that weekend. He says, we joined the angels and archangels before the throne. He says, when we gather for worship, whether we're immediately aware of it or not, we're about to meet the holy other. And he adds, perhaps the most neglected opportunity in contemporary worship is the prelude when we prepare our hearts to meet with God. You know, God often gets pushed to the periphery of our lives. All the noise and distractions around us block our view of him, but that shouldn't happen. We should live life centered on God, and and we should be prepared to show reverence to God. And and this morning I want to talk about an event in the life of David that's really about this subject that I'm talking with you about right now, and it's the bringing of the Ark of the Covenant back to the center of Israel. And, and my hope is that we will bring the Ark of the Covenant out of our closets and into the center of our lives. <laughs> the first thing I want to talk about is God's presence is desired. David, more than anything else, desired God's presence. The neglect of worship is always a sign of spiritual decline among any people, and David recognized this was a problem in Israel. And as soon as he's established as the king of Israel, the very first act he wants to do is set out and correct that. In the days of David, the central place of worship was the tabernacle. And during Saul's reign, the emphasis on the tabernacle had drifted. And the most significant piece of furniture in the tabernacle had been separated from the tabernacle. In a battle against the Philistines decades before this, before David's reign, God had judged Israel by allowing the Ark of the Covenant to be captured by the enemy, and, and we're told that the glory of God departed from Israel. The Philistines, however, learned what it meant to have this Ark, the Holy Ark, in their possession. When a plague broke out and a number of people's lives were lost, finally the Philistines put the ark on a cart drawn by Malchard cows and just sent it back into Israel. They didn't want it in their country anymore. It arrived at a small border town between Israel and the Philistine territory, and the ark was taken to the home of a man by the name of Abinadab. And throughout the decades of Saul's reign, it just remained there, neglected and forgotten. Actually, that was a picture of the role God played in the reign of Saul. 
God was pushed to the side, overlooked, ignored, almost completely forgotten. You know, the absence of a piece of furniture wouldn't mean much to us today, but in those days it represented the presence of God and the Lord's glory rested on the ark and it was the holiest place on earth. So when David takes the throne, one of the first things he wants to do is to restore God's glory to his people and he wanted God to have this central place in the lives of his people once again. And he knew that one of the ways of doing that would be to bring the Ark of the Covenant back to the tabernacle. During David's wilderness experience, he had been being trained by God to be king, and he had learned over and over again that he needed God's guidance to be successful. The times he relied on his own wisdom, things turned out much less than satisfying. And so bringing the Ark uh, home which represented the presence of God among his people was David's first priority. David was a historian, and years before this, when God's people left Exodus, they were told by God, I will meet with you there at the ark and talk to you above the atonement cover between the golden cherubim that hover over the ark of the covenant, and from there I will give you my commands for all, all the people of Israel. And that's exactly what David longed for as king. This is what he knew he needed. A place to meet with God, an opportunity to be in constant communion with him, a place to seek and know his will and lead people accordingly. And so in verse 1 of chapter 6 of 2 Samuel, we're told that David gathered the elite troops in Israel 30,000 in all. Now think about that number. He didn't send a group of 10 or 15 people to get the ark. He gathers 30,000 people. That's big. And uh, these are the chosen men of Israel. It sounds like he's preparing for a, a serious battle. Representatives of all Israel are involved. We're told in verse 2, then that he led them to Baal, Bela of Judah to bring back the ark of God, which bears the name of the Lord of heaven's armies, who is enthroned between the cherubim. And they placed the ark on a new cart and brought it from Abinadab's house, which was on a hill. Uzzah and Ahio Abinadab's sons were guiding the ark as it left the house, carrying the ark of God, on the cart, carrying the ark of God. Ahio was in front of the ark, and David and all the people were celebrating before the Lord. They were singing songs and playing all kinds of musical instruments, lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. This is a huge celebration. The joy is overwhelming. And, and we have a term for what's happening here. It's called revival. Revival, I like to define revival as simply bringing God back to the center of our lives. And for many of us, God has been delegated a position on the circumference of our lives, but he wants to be the center. He wants to be the sun we orbit, not one of the planets orbiting us. <laughs> you know, yes, 
God's part of our lives. We're religious. We go to church. We pray at meals, but too often there's not a real vital sense of God in our lives or in our homes. And we need to get the ark out of our closets and place them in the middle of our living rooms where we can't do anything without tripping over it. Until we desire God like David did, that's not going to happen. Well, David desires to restore worship to Israel here. But in the process of doing that, he's going to discover that there's much more to God than what he thought. He didn't fully realize what it would mean to have God's presence with them. In fact, secondly, we were going to see that God's presence is feared. So here they are coming out of Jerusalem, this parade, 30,000 people, picture it, a procession celebrating. It would have been several miles long. And suddenly... All the celebration stops, and all the laughter stops, and all the singing is silence. There's a wave that goes throughout the crowd. Everything comes to an abrupt halt, and here's why. We're told in verse 6 that when they arrived at the threshing floor of Nacom, the, the oxen stumbled, and Yuza reached out his hand to steady the ark of God, and then the Lord's anger was aroused against Yuza. And God struck him dead because of this. So Yuzah died right there beside the ark. All of a sudden, the celebration's over. You know, to get a feeling of what this might have been like, just this sudden hush that came. Uh, a couple weeks ago, I was watching the Cincinnati Buffalo football game. It was a big game, one of the most exciting matches of the year. Both teams were division leaders, and home team advantage was at stake for the playoffs, and the crowds were really rowdy and hyped up in Cincinnati Stadium. And, and then DeMar Hamlin, a 24-year-old defensive back, collapsed on the field. They waited and watched in stunned silence for 20 minutes until Hamlin was taken away by ambulance to the University of Cincinnati Medical Center in critical condition. Following uh, Hamlin's injury, the players on both teams appeared visibly shaken. Uh, the situation, by the situation that unfolded in front of them, several players were seen on national TV kneeling with tears rolling down their faces, these big, tough football players kneeling and praying, the game was stopped and it wouldn't be resumed. Glenn Goodberry was a, a Bills fan who was in the stadium that day, and he, he was talking about just the peak electricity that everybody felt. You know, this is an important game. There was energy vibrating through the stadium until the point he said, my eyes went fuzzy. <laughs> he says, it was so loud, I thought, I wish I had brought earplugs. And then suddenly, this eerie silence falls over the whole stadium. Goodberry says, I'll never forget the sound of the ambulance when it left the field. Everybody was totally silent. It was something like that that happened here. Yuza's death had a similarly sobering effect on the celebration of bringing home the ark. 
There beside the, the ark is Yuza, and immediately the laughter stops, the singing stops, the joyful shouts became trembling silence. The procession changed from an excited, happy parade to a stunned, frightened crowd, and eventually the subdued crowd dispersed, all 30,000 of them making their way back home without the ark. What a letdown. They're perplexed. This is one of those things that if I were writing the Bible, I would not include in it. <laughs> and it's been a cause of consternation for people ever since it's been written. It's one of the reasons I know God's book is a divine book because he's not trying to make friends with this article, <laughs> with this event. And what's disturbing is that in this case, Yuza's death was clearly attributed to God's anger. And we come away saying, you know, God, why? Why, why would you do something like this? Why? Why? When they're trying to bring the ark back into Jerusalem to restore it as, as the center of worship in Israel, why would you do something like this? I don't know if there's a good answer, but, but the answer we have to go to is that God's a very holy God. <laughs> and God has given the Israelites specific instructions about how the ark was to be transported. In Numbers 4, we were told that, that the ark could only be handled by the, 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 the sub-clan of the Levites known as the Korathites. Kor, who were men who were made holy for the task of transporting the ark. And, and first, they had to, before they could move the ark anywhere, they had to cover it with goat skin because you weren't allowed to even look upon the ark or you would have to die. And secondly, the, the ark had to be carried by the Korathites who, with wooden poles, threw rings on the side of the ark so they didn't touch the ark because we're told in Numbers 4.15 that if anyone touched the ark they would die. God's holy. And given these clear biblical instructions and warnings, David's casualness in bringing the ark home was unacceptable to God. In our judgment, David's mistake was a minor indiscretion. After all, his intention was good. And isn't an intention the only thing that matters? Shouldn't God have overlooked this slip-up considering David's overall devotion to the worship of God? Yuza, by putting his hand to steady the ark when the oxen stumbled, prevented it from falling in the dirt. And yet the Lord took his life. And David, we're told in the next verse, was angry at God. Verse 8 says, David was angry because the Lord's anger had burst out against Yuza, and he named the place Para-Yuza, which means to burst out against Yuza, as it is still called today. To him, God's wrath seemed like an overreaction. Wasn't Yuza simply trying to honor God? by keeping the ark out of the mud. 
And we're told that what angered David was the Lord had broken out against Uzzah. Now, if you remember last week, we were, the, the, the phrase we were using is the Lord who has broken out. And we were talking about in chapter 5 uh, where David had conquered the Philistines and all of a sudden they're seeing God on the side of Israel once again. And, and he gave God all the credit for that battle and he named the place where he conquered the Philistines. And this was after Saul had lost the battle to the Philistines and lost his life in that battle. But he named that place Baal Perizim which means the Lord bursting through and God had burst out on behalf of the Israelites against the Philistines. This time, however, that same terrifying power came against God's own people. And David again attaches a name to the setting. He renames the threshing floor of Nacon, Perazuza, which means the Lord burst out against Uzzah and he named it so they would remember it and never forget what happened there that day. Now, if we have a problem with Uzzah's death here, it's because we, like David, don't fully understand the holiness of God. It's true that Uzzah's action in touching the ark was not a premeditated act of disobedience. It was only doing what seemed right at the moment. About 40 years ago, I, I read a book that left a deep impression on me. It was a book entitled The Holiness of God by R.C. Sproul. And in that book, Sproul talks about this event. And he says, we think that Uzzah should have heard God's voice from heaven shouting, thank you, Uzzah. <laughs> God didn't do that. Instead, he took his life. Why would God react this way? Well, the answer has to do with who God is. The answer is that, that, that Uzzah touching the ark was not a heroic act of devotion. It, it was really a sin of arrogance and presumption. And Sproul explains it this way. He says, Uzzah assumed that his hand was less polluted than the earth. But it wasn't. The ground of the mud that would desecrate the ark was was, uh, it's not the ground or the mud that would desecrate the ark. It was the touch of a man. He says the earth is, is neutral. It's obedient to its creator. It's not doing anything against its creator. It does what God tells it to do. The ground doesn't commit cosmic treason. There's nothing polluted about the ground. But man's touch is polluted since man has committed cosmic treason by revolting against God's law in sin. Richard Phillips puts it this way. He says, if the shock of Uzzah's death offends us as it did David, the most likely explanation is that we have not comprehended the enormous offense of our sin or the perfect holiness of God that cannot abide such desecration as we have committed. But you know what I think really bothers us in this story? Is that God so often leaves sin unpunished. So why single somebody out on this occasion? Why when his mercy 
is so evident so many times. Is it so harsh? This, is God so harsh this time? Where's the justice in that? And Sproul goes on and explains that uh, with an illustration from his early days as a college professor. He says this. He says, when I was teaching a freshman course in Old Testament to 250 students at a Christian college, he says, at the beginning of the term, I carefully went over the course requirements and explained that there'd be three short papers in this course. They were due at the end of each month, one in September, one in October, and one in November. Last day of the month, he says, you have to have these papers in on time. If you don't, you receive an F on the assignment. The only exception would be if you get a note from your doctor or there's immediate pro- problem in your family or there's a tidal wave or earthquake or, you know, whatever, whatever kind of thing it might be, or meteorite hits or whatever, okay? He says, when the first paper was due, 225 of my 250 students handed in their papers on time. 25 came to me shaking in fear. And they were full of remorse, and they pled for mercy, and they said, oh, Pop, Professor Sproul, we're so sorry. We're stupid freshmen. We don't know. You know, we haven't learned to budget our time right. You know, we haven't made the adjustments to college life. And Don't, don't, don't give us an F. You know, give us an extension. And, and he said he had compassion for them, and he gave them an extension. He says, I relented. I said, all right, I'll give you a break this time. But remember, the next assignment is due the last day of October. And they said, sure. And they started talking about what a great professor he was. The next paper came due this time. 200 students came with their papers and 50 students came empty-handed. They were nervous, but not in panic like before. And when they, he says, when I asked for their papers, they were again contrite and said and gave excuses. You know, you know, we weren't prepared for midterms, midterms are, and their school activities, you know, homecoming, you know, all these things going on and, and we just didn't have time to get it done. And he says, I agreed to give him mercy again. And they praised me for being the greatest teacher ever. And I told him, you know, don't forget, you got a third paper and it's due on time or you get an F. He says, what do you think happened when the third paper came due? (laughs) What's human nature do, you know? This time, 150 students came with their term papers done. And a hundred students strolled into the lecture hall unconcerned. He says, I pulled out my grade book and started giving the students who were late an F. And all of a sudden they became very indignant. They're very upset. And he says, they begin to tell me that's not fair. And they begin to, to complain. And, and he said, did you say it's not fair? And they said, yeah, that's not fair. He says, are you, you asking for justice? And they said, yeah, we want justice. He says, okay, you were late last time too, so you now have two Fs. And they, they were a little surprised, and they, all of a sudden the other students started backing off, and, and he says this. He says, the students had quickly taken my mercy for granted, They had assumed it. He says, when justice finally came, they were unprepared for it. It came as a shock, and they were outraged. He says, this was after only two doses of mercy in the space of two months. (laughs) Already, 
they had stopped taking God seriously. Because he's a merciful God. You know, so quickly we start taking God's grace for granted and presume on his kindness and we start taking him less and less seriously. And because he's shown us mercy for so long, we start demanding mercy as if it's something that's owed to us. Mercy is never owed. (laughs) It's granted, it's a gift, it's given. And it must never be taken for granted. The Old Testament's a long record of God's patient, loving kindness with mercy after mercy being bestowed on his sinful people who neglect him and forget him over and over again. But the time comes when God finally shows up and he brings consequences. And when he does, that's far from unjust. Sproul elaborates this way. He says, it's the confusion between justice and mercy that makes us shrink in horror when we read the story of Uzzah. When God's justice falls, we are offended because we think God owes us perpetual mercy. Like David, we need to learn the lesson of God's absolute holiness so that we have a proper fear of the Lord and we're kept from a casual, cavalier attitude toward our sin. The next verse, verse 9, tells us that David was now afraid of the Lord. And he asked, you know, how am I ever going to bring the ark of God back to my care? The fact is, he's so shook up that he leaves the ark there. He leaves it at the home of a, a Philistine, a Gittite, and he goes home without it. The Gittite's name is Obed-Edom, and the ark stays at Obed-Edom's home, and and David goes home very discouraged because God is too dangerous to deal with. And like David, there will come a point where we'll understand that God's not under our control. He's not answerable to us. He's not our puppet on a string. We'll never fully understand God until we understand he's holy, he's not tame, he is a terrifying God. We have no control over him. Well, thirdly, then, we're going to see God's presence solemnly celebrated. In verse 11, we're told the ark of the Lord remained at Obed-Edom's house for three months. And listen to this next phrase. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and his entire household. And David was told, the Lord has blessed Obed-Edom's household and everything he has because of the ark. And so David went there and brought the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom into the city of David with a great celebration. So three months go by. And, and, and I'm thinking during those three months, what would David be doing? How would he be handling himself? And, and I can't help but imagine that he's, he's trying to work through his confusion. You know, what am I going to do about the ark? I wanted to bring God's symbol of presence back to his people. And, and, and he's tossing and turning through sleepless nights, wondering why God did what he did. And I'm sure 
if it had been me, I would have wondered, why, God, didn't you support my first act as king? I was trying to do something for you. I wanted worship to be restored to its proper place in, in the, with the people. And now the attitude of the people toward the ark is fear. Why? And so for three months, he doesn't even know what to do. But then he gets this word that this guy's house is being blessed because he has the ark there. Now, I don't know how it's being blessed, but for everybody to be talking about it within three months, a lot of really good things must be happening there. And David's jealous. (laughs) I wanted the presence of God in the center of my kingdom. And so he decides to take another run at it to bring the ark home. He gathers another crowd. We should notice this time there's no mention of a new cart or oxen. And, and there's a nervousness in the celebration. We're told that in verse 13, after the men who were carrying the ark of God, God had gone six steps, they stopped, they offered sacrifices to the Lord before they continued on. This time, it's a solemn rejoicing. This time, as they move forward, they do so with with great caution and trepidation. All of a sudden, they realize there's much more to this God than what they ever understood. And after only six steps, they offer a sacrifice. They want to make sure their sins are covered. Sacrifices were atonements for their sins. And, and, And David's remembering what happened to Uzzah. And the question he asked on that occasion is, how can the ark ever come to me? And now his answer, the answer seems to be by atonement being made and the journey continues and, 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 but the joy is intense this time but it's a different kind of joy it's not just a, uh, just a loud celebration there's, there, there's a, an incredible celebration going on but there, there's also this great reverence in the midst of it all because they, they understand more fully now who God is than they ever have before that he's bigger than what they ever thought he would be. In verse 14, we're told David, the king, danced before the Lord with all of his might. The scene can be summed up in verse 15, and David and all the people of Israel brought the ark of the Lord with shouts of joy and blowing ram's horns. And so the king and the whole family of God's people together were rejoicing as they bring the ark of the Lord into Jerusalem. Fourthly, then, we see God's presence being scorned. While this incredible celebration is happening on the street, there's someone watching from a window. Verse 16 says, As the ark of the Lord entered the city of David, Micah, do you remember her? Michael. Michael was the daughter of Saul that was given to David as a wife, and then when David was chased by Saul into the wilderness. He gave Michael to another man, and then when David became king, he demanded that Michael, his wife, be given back to him, and Michael, his wife, is with David again now. As the ark of the Lord enters the city of David, Michael, the daughter of Saul, looks out her window, and when she sees David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she is filled with contempt for him. 
It's been pointed out that Michael here is identified not as the wife of David, but as the daughter of Saul. And she represents the old rejected kingdom of her father. She shows herself truly to be the daughter of Saul. Years earlier, she had loved David. In fact, she had put herself in considerable danger to help him escape from her father when he was trying to kill her. He sent, her, sent him out the window of their house when, David was sending, when Saul was sending his men to get David. But now Saul's daughter's looking out the window with contempt for him. It was embarrassment for her to see him so emotional. It's not becoming of a king. She knows how kings are supposed to behave. She's the daughter of a king. And so in verse 20, after the celebration had entered the city, David goes home to bless his own family. He's coming home to share the blessing with them. And Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet him. And she said in disgust, how distinguished the king of Israel looked today. (laughs) Shamelessly exposing himself to servant girls like any vulgar person might do. She had a view of the glory of a, king, of a king, and this was not it. She indeed was the daughter of Saul, and David was an embarrassment to the office. And so while David's heart is full of spiritual excitement, her heart is full of disgust. The manner David abandoned his royal dignity before the Lord, however, was really an act of glad humility. David knew who the real king was. He was making himself nothing, taking on the form of a servant. You know, another king would come along eventually who would do the same thing, who would make himself nothing and take on the form of a servant. And so David retorts to Michael. She says this in verse 21, I was dancing before the Lord. I wasn't paying attention to you or all the people around me. I was dancing before the Lord who chose me above your father and his family. Ouch. He appointed me to be the leader of Israel, the people of the Lord, and I will celebrate before the Lord. Yes, I'm willing to be look even more foolish than this and even be humiliated in my own eyes, but those servant girls you mentioned will indeed think I am distinguished. And so we're told that Michael, the son of the daughter of Saul, remained childless throughout her entire life. David doesn't see himself so much as Israel's king, but as God's servant. And humility is appropriate for servants. And for David, humility is dignity because of who he serves. And to him, there's nothing wrong about being emotional before God. David was not concerned about acting the part of a man of high stature. Instead, he was willing to join with the lowliest servants in humble reverence and adoration of the one they all are answerable to, the one they all serve. Some of us are as stoical as stones in our love for God. And when others are moved to emotion, we're uncomfortable with it, if not irritated by it. But where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's going to be tears. There's going to be sorrow for sin. There's going to be joy in forgiveness and rejoicing. And there's going to be enthusiasm. And there's going to be joyful singing. Do you remember the day of Pentecost? 
when they were in the, gathered in the upper room and the Holy Spirit came down upon them and, and, and they were overwhelmed and people on the outside were perplexed and they were saying, what can this mean? And, and they were asking each other what was going on. And so people were amazed and they were perplexed and others were ridiculed them saying they're just drunk, that's all. And so you got all these reactions to what God's doing. Some are amazed, some are doubted, some perplexed, some mocked. And I wonder how we would react if we had been there. Jonathan Edwards is considered one of the most brilliant leaders in the history of the church, and he wrote a book entitled Religious Affections, and in this book he said this. He says, I am bold to assert that no change of religious nature will take place unless the affections are moved. Without this, no natural man will seek earnestly for his salvation. Without this, there'll be no wrestling with God in prayer. He says, man's nature is very lazy unless he's influenced by some affection such as love or hate or desire or hope or fear. He says, these emotions are like springs that set us moving in all the affairs of life and its pursuits. You know what religion without emotion is? It's dead orthodoxy. <laughs> Emotions are a catalyst that move us to action. Our love causes us to reach out to others for Christ. Our sorrow is what makes God's, for sin, is what makes God's grace so real and alive to us because when we understand who we are, his grace becomes so much greater. Our desire to know God brings life to our devotions and joy in what he's done for us lifts us out of our depression and fear of his holiness causes us to deal harshly with the sin in our own lives and the list goes on and on. Affection is an evidence of true religion. David desired God, then he feared God, then he worshiped God. Those are kind of steps to revival. So in closing, let me ask you, what is your view of God? How does it need to be expanded? Is he your Lord or is he your servant? Is he your reason for living or is he someone to keep on standby until he's needed? Do you feel deserving of what he does for you or completely unworthy of his blessing? Are you getting comfortable with your sins, accepting of your imperfections, or do you abhor the sinfulness of your heart in his presence? When you come to him, do you do so with great self-confidence or with an awareness that you can only be in his presence because somebody died for your sins and covered your sins? After they had gone six steps, David sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf. Do you worship with heartfelt abandon? Are you more reserved? Are you concerned about maintaining a sense of personal dignity and uncomfortable with those who express too much emotion? Who is God to you? Let's pray. Father, when I ask myself that question, who is God to me, I real, realize I really need to have a reality check. I I, I, I fail to see how great a God you truly are. 
And often I'm even almost flippant in your presence, Lord, and I, I confess that and I ask for forgiveness for that. I pray that you will awaken in me and in our people here in this church a, a deeper realization of who you are so we will rejoice, but we will do so with incredible reverence in our hearts. I pray that you would expand our vision of you to such a degree that it overshadows every earthly goal that we have for ourselves and every earthly passion and, and that we would become people so centered in you that, that our lives uh, change. Thank you, Lord, for giving us your son and making it possible for us to come before a holy God like this with a covering of our sin and shame. That's a reason to rejoice. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We hope you are blessed by the message today. Follow us on social media to keep up to date with church news and events.